You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, the last uh, year, more than a year, we as a church have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And so I want to invite you to, to join me there. We'll be in the 16th chapter of Matthew. Uh, and so we will be picking up where we've left off over the last uh, several weeks uh, and even months and even over the last year. And uh, as you make your way there, you'll, you'll find a paperback Bible in the tray that's in front of you. Uh, and so we want to make that our gift to you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is one of the first times you've opened a Bible. Uh, we're really grateful that you are opening it with us. And so we have good news to offer as we open it together. And uh, as we say regularly that when we open the Bible, by the power of the Spirit of God, the Bible actually begins to open us. And so we'll be in the 16th chapter, kind of in the middle and if, uh, if I can, I'll, before I kind of get started, I'll give you a little bit of a preface. The, up to this point, Matthew has been introducing us to Jesus by, his powerful, by telling us about his powerful works, his miraculous works, his powerful teaching, his ability to even raise the dead. And now we find ourselves at the turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Some of the most important things that we see in the entirety of the book find themselves in chapter 15 and 16. So much so that next week, as we begin to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, we'll find ourselves at the turning point that you see in verse 21. From that time, from that time, it says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests. That is that from this moment on, the trajectory of Jesus is toward the cross, it's toward what will ultimately happen when, he is over, when he's handed over, betrayed, and crucified. Now, before then, uh, I want to invite you then to, to Matthew's gospel into the 16th chapter. We're going to read verses 13 through 20. And as Jesus is introducing us to some of these pivotal, quite literally pivotal, the, the whole Bible, or the, excuse me, the whole gospel will pivot on these points. He's introduced us to warnings about teaching that would interrupt and undermine the gospel of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then we find here him introducing us to what he is going to accomplish beyond his death and resurrection through his people in the church. So we're going to read in verse 13 through verse 20 a picture of the foundation of the church. And I want to invite you to consider what that might be. Maybe even if, even if this morning, if you're familiar with the church, if you, maybe you know a little bit about the church or you were even raised in a, in a context that was fluent in the language of the church. I say it this way uh, when, when, we, when we get a chance to is this is a moment where you get to possibly unpack your bags. Last week was a warning that, that the teaching of who God is and what God has done can easily be corrupted by our own self-righteous tendencies. And so, so if, this is, if you're new to the church, I'm really grateful you're here. You're going to get to listen in on a conversation about what Jesus says the church is and literally what it is founded upon. And then we'll get an idea for us to dream about how beautiful it could be. So beginning in verse 13, now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want to begin our journey through this particular portion, a turning point in the Gospel of John, with a question. If I were to tell you that I am a football player, what are the first couple of questions you would ask me in response? Just begin to think about them. If I said to you, I'm a, I'm a football player, that's, that's who I am, that's what I do. What are the first couple of questions that would naturally follow that you would ask me? Now, if sports analogies aren't helpful, uh, okay, I'll give you a different one. What if I told you I am an orchestra musician? What are the first couple of questions that you would immediately ask? You see, if I came to you and I said, I'm a football player, one of the first things you would ask is, what team do you play for? Right? And maybe the second thing you would ask is, okay, what position do you play? Now, here's the catch. If someone told you as a response to that something like, right, myself, right? Like, no, I, no I'm not that kind of football player. I don't have a team. I'm, I'm a football player, but I don't play on a team. And if you're like, well, what position do you play? And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand I'm a football player, but I don't play a position. You would immediately wonder if I really understood what it is uh, was, that was going on in me. And, and you would wonder if I really understood what a football player is. Same if I told you, like, I'm a musician in an orchestra. One of the first things you would ask is, great, what, what orchestra are you a part of? Now, again, imagine if I told you something like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't play in an orchestra. I, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a mu an orchestral musician, but I, I'm, not, I'm not a part of any particular orchestra. And if you ask, okay, fine, well, what, what musical instrument do you play? And you're like, no, 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 I don't, I don't play a particular instrument. Also, you would wonder if I even knew what I was talking about. Jesus gives us a prophetic word about what will ensue beyond his death and resurrection and what will come based on Quite literally, as he said here, founded upon, built upon, disciples professing that Jesus is the Christ would be, did you hear that word, the church. And yet many people, if you were to ask them what Christianity is to them and what it means to be a Christian, you would find a strange phenomenon. That they are able to talk about possibly being a Christian without mentioning being a part of a local church or without playing any sort of integral role in it. And I have good news for you straight from Jesus. Christ has come and done something that has now given you and I new life, but it is, all, it is also that he has come and giving us new life, he has given us a new family. And he's given us a new purpose, a new essential role in his kingdom come in the earth. And all of that is wrapped up in that word, church. 
And in this turning point in the Gospel of Matthew, we get to see who Jesus is, and in the weeks to come, you'll even hear more about uh, his death and resurrection and what it means to follow him. But, but the first of those pieces about who Jesus is is an introduction to the church. And the church, as we read it here in this text, is the called out people of God, supernaturally professing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, quite literally the Son of the living God. Now I'll unpack more of that here, but, but Jesus gives us at least four things. First, the foundation of the church. He gives us the confession or the profession, the belief of the church. He also gives us the future of the church, and he un- unpacks for us the hope of the church. Of the church. And so I want to walk through these things. Uh, you don't need to take all of them down. We're going to move quickly through them. We'll get some of these notes that you'll see flashed up here uh, on, onto our website and, and some of the places where you can get access to this sermon. And, and hopefully this will serve as a resource helpful going forward. But, but think of it this way. Jesus invented the church. It's Jesus' idea. Well, where do I get that? This is the first mention of the word church in the Bible. This word shows up for the first time here in Matthew chapter 16, and it is introduced by Jesus. So first and foremost, this thing that is the church is something that Jesus creates, that he redeems, that he himself is the foundation of, that he himself is the sustainer of. So let's walk through this together, beginning in verse 13. I'll give you some statements, I think, uh, about what it means to be a part of the church, and, and I'll give you some ideas here based on this text that Jesus has invented and, and introduced us to what the church is. I'll, I'll say it, the church is kinds of statements while we're here together, but, but I want to give you the end result, and, and I think the goal, at least for me this morning, is I am inviting you to, number one, submit to Jesus, and number two, submit to his church. That's what I'm inviting you to participate in this morning. To be willing to give your whole life to Jesus, and I think you'll find he's worth it. And to give your whole life to the church, because she's worth it. Now here's what I'll tell you at the outset. You might have a whole bunch of other things uh, that come to mind when I say the word church. We'll try to unpack some of those, right? Think of this as unpacking day. We get to unpack our bags of things that are unhelpful, potentially, or even barriers. We'll, we'll get to those things. But, but this is what I'm pushing for. This is what I want to compel to you that this is actually Jesus' idea, and that Jesus has a blessing for us in that. Now, that means that I want you to become a member, a covenant member of Connection Church, or if it's not Connection Church, and we'll talk more about that, then that's fine, but you don't get off the hook for what Jesus is saying will happen. And even if it's not Connection Church, I want you to submit your life to Jesus, because he's worth it. And I want you to give your life to the local church, because she's worth it. So, First and foremost, the, church, the first church is statement. The church is the people of God set aside for the purpose of God among outsiders. That is that the ingredients for the church are people who are not a part of it. Look at the first verse. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now, that already, as we've seen through the Gospel of Matthew, has been walking through it, he's already been spending the majority of his time in Galilee. That's the outskirts, right? That's the, the far off. Well, think of this is beyond that. Uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus commands his disciples as he's resurrected to go and be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. At least in that kind of a map, we're in the ends of the earth here. And it's not an accident that Jesus begins talking about what he will create in 
the church globally and locally amongst the outsiders. That is that it is God's good pleasure to draw people who are excluded by their own sin, by all sorts of other reasons, and adopt them and make them his own. The church is the people of God, set aside for the purpose of God among the outsiders. So the context is important here. He, he's in the outsider's place, right? He is not among the highly re- religious. That's not where he's spending his time. And yet he's giving a pivotal word that will set their trajectory for the rest of the New Testament right here. And he asks them a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now this is a statement that's really hard to translate into English. He actually is asking something more literally like, um, who do people say, now it's not just who do people say that the Son of Man is, it's more like, who do people say that I am the Son of Man? And so he has kind of this play on words where he's saying, who do, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, is? How, how do you translate that? It's, it's tricky. But what you see uh, missing here, at least in this translation, is the I. He, he's, he's saying and he's connecting himself with that language of the Son of Man. Now that's important because this language, the Son of Man language, is right out of Old Testament prophecy, specifically the prophecy of Daniel, in which Daniel, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of exile, gives a word of hope that God gives to his people, that he will not leave them in exile, that he will restore them, that he will redeem them, that he will give them a new path. And the way that they will know that God has come to redeem them is through the language here of the Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7, and I commend this entire chapter, the whole book of Daniel, I guess, uh, seems right to commend to you also this week to read. But, but in the 13th verse, you get a picture of Daniel's vision that God's given him for his people of redemption. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. A son of man, that that's meant to make you think of the human one, right? You're meant to think of the nature of this one in the same way that, right, like a, a son of a duck is a duck, right? A son of the offspring, the seed of the son of a human is a human. There's a human one that will come. And he, that is that, that human one, came to the ancient of days. That is the, the one in which there is no end and no beginning, the God of the universe, and was presented before him. So you get this kind of picture of God's redemptive work, and you already start to get a picture of the Trinity, the God the, the Father, the Creator, and God the Son, the Redeemer, and God the Spirit, the Sustainer. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And this kingdom, and his kingdom one, that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus comes along and says, who do you say, or who do people say that I, the son of man, is, he is connecting himself with a tradition, a promise that God has given the prophet Daniel that he is connecting himself to. This is powerful language. He is saying, I am that one. How do people understand that I am actually the one to fulfill God's promise? I am the one to come on in a way that, that now God is with us to redeem us and restore us and establish a kingdom. Establish a kingdom that will have no end. It won't be like an earthly king that comes and goes when, 
when, when either through election or upheaval or even just the, the passing of, 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 of the crown to the next generation, like, it, it won't end like earthly kingdoms. This kingdom will have no end. And Jesus is saying, I am that one. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just want to know what people might say. And this might be a good invitation for you. Like, I wouldn't want you to leave this morning thinking like, well, hypothetically, I can get the idea of who Jesus might be. And so maybe if you're not a believer or not a Christian, this is really, I'm really grateful that you're here. Uh, And I would encourage you, answer that kind of thing. Who do people say Jesus is? What do these Jesus people say about him? But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He, He takes it a step further. Verse 15, he says, but now who do you say that I am? And to you, I would pose that same question. Who do you think Jesus really is? If you were pressed to give an answer right now, who do you say Jesus is? That's the question that's posed for the disciples, that Peter volunteers an answer. But it's also the second half of the profession of faith of Christians that Peter articulates in a moment here. The church is the community of God's people that believe that Jesus has acted definitively, completely, and sufficiently on our behalf. Where do I get that? Well, add the two together. Jesus attaching himself to the Son of Man language, the the divine emissary of God himself present with us, and yet also the human one. So that God would, God has acted in Christ completely, definitively, sufficiently. That Jesus is truly divine. That Jesus is truly the God of the universe taking on flesh. So that what he does has lasting authority. It matters. And yet also the mystery, the paradox that Jesus is truly human. So that as Hebrews 4 tells us that he can genuinely empathize, sympathize with you and with me. He can do something on our behalf fully and completely. And the church is the people who answer this question. Who do others say and who do I say that he is? We're the ones who say that he is the son of man. And yet, as Jesus says, or as, as Peter says here, also the son of God. He is the one who is truly authoritatively acting on behalf of God. And yet, as a man, he is truly and authoritatively acting on behalf of humans. He is the intercessor, the redeemer that has bridged the gap between the divine and the carnal and the finite. Truly the son of God, truly the son of man. And you see that in the answer of Simon Peter. Verse 16, Simon Peter answers that question. You are the Christ. That that language of the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who will come about and fulfill all of God's promises. You are that. The son of the living God. And you can hear that profession, a powerful profession of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Truly God, the son of man and the son of God. This is what the church holds fast to. This is what the church professes, that Jesus is enough. You can trust him. You can look to him. You can depend on him. You can rest in him. You can find comfort and hope in him. In fact, you can find comfort and hope in him and in nothing else. But next we see that the church 
is the people who have had their eyes supernaturally opened to see who Jesus is and what he has done. You see that in the next verse. Peter makes this great profession. You're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Literally, Simon, son of Jonah. Just simply saying his first and last name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but instead what? My Father who is in heaven. The church is the people of God who have had our eyes supernaturally open to who Jesus is. Did you hear what Jesus said there? He doesn't say, good for you, Simon Peter, you sure are smart, right? You sure are clever. Wow, you've connected the dots, Peter. You are a genius. You know, blessed are so many of the geniuses that will follow in your footsteps. They're going to be wicked smart, right? They're going to figure this out. But one of the things you'll find for the rest of the New Testament, for the entirety of the rest of the New Testament, especially in the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul loves to talk about this. The Apostle Paul loves to recount how it is that Christians go from being not Christians to being Christians. And when he does it, he speaks in this supernatural language. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the Apostle Paul says that no one can say, that Jesus is accursed, that is to turn on or reject Jesus if they're under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord, almost word for word what Peter says here, unless by the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is no one can profess faith and hope and find hum comfort and, 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 and rest in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit, the powerful Spirit of God, plants that faith in him as a tremendous act of grace. Now, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, the warnings against being a Pharisee are found here as, I believe you find the cure here. The cure to being a Pharisee, that is the cure to thinking that you are better than others, the cure to self-righteousness, the cure to believing uh, or to cure from that, that, that belief that you're better than others and to look down on others is found here. To believe that the only good and gracious thing in you is given to you by God as a gift keeps you, protects you from thinking that you're somehow better than someone else. And he says, Peter, this isn't something you deduced. This is something that the God of the universe has shown you. Flesh and blood did not show you this. And the rest of the New Testament also expounds upon this. The idea that there's something in the flesh and blood that you and I are born into and yet it in and of itself doesn't have the power to save so much so that the apostle paul will tell us later that our battles in this world are not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities spiritual forces in the universe so the church is the people who not only believe that Jesus has worked sufficiently and completely on our behalf, but we believe that even the ability to profess that is a gift. Apart from God's supernatural grace to reach into the story and pluck us out of it, we would never think that ourselves. And blessed, he says, is Simon for seeing this. Then he says that he's going to do something by which I believe that the church is now the visible representation on earth of the redemptive character and purpose of God in eternity. Look at what he encourages Peter with. Blessed are you, right? Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. My Father, my Heavenly Father has revealed this to you, who I am and how I've come to redeem. 
And I tell you, now he does a play on word here, player on words here. He changes his name. Just a minute ago, he said, you are Simon. And then he gives him a new name. And I tell you, you are Peter, literally Petros. And on this rock, literally Petra. It's a play on words. Jesus is a good preacher. He says things memorably. He says, you, I'm going to rename you. Now, this is a callback to the rest of the Old Testament and the tradition of God's interacting on behalf of human beings that gives them new identity and new name, right? From, from the first, from the first who Jew, Jew who was a Gentile, Abram, Abram, who by God's promise was made into what? The father of many nations, Abraham. Even then, that is that Judah, the this slimy, slippery, conniving, cunning son of Isaac, right? Is renamed what? Israel. Because he's striven with God. When God interacts with his people, he changes their name. He gives them a new trajectory. And so also here we see a picture for Peter as the, the first of those who, having seen Jesus who, for who he is, has a new trajectory, even insofar as he has a new name. And in that new name, Jesus begins to commend to us the purpose of Peter and the other disciples. You're Peter, quite literally Petros, where we were Petra, where we get our word petrified, becomes like a rock. And so he says, you, maybe kind of our, our, our English equivalent would be like Rocky, right? You, Rocky, right? I'm sorry for all of the pictures of the boxing movies that just came through your head, but it's the best we got, okay? You, Peter, Rocky, and on you, this you rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church is the people that now have seen the goodness and greatness of God in Jesus, reflecting his redemptive character, that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now they are doing something actively in the world. They exist in a certain way that is now set apart and is different. That word set apart is incredibly important. That, that word church, if you hear almost nothing else that I say this morning, it might be best to give you this kind of Greek nerdery. That, that word church translate here, translated here, church, is the word ekklesia, the, the prefix ek, the way we think ek or ex or out, right? Like expand or explode, something that goes outward. And klesos, quite literally called. And so this word ekklesia literally means called out. So you, Peter, you are going to be the rock, and I'm going to build my called-out ones. Now, at this particular time, that word would have been more commonly used to refer to the assembly or, or the, the governing body of, in this case, like the, the ancient Greeks and even in the Romans. That's someone who is chosen as a representative, someone who would represent in a congress or a, or a governing body the, the, the people and their interests, and that's how they would have made decisions. And so you get this picture of like, there's these people called out of normal citizenry and they're meant to be standing apart and in some way representing or, or painting a picture of something else being called out from these people. And that's what the church is, the called out ones. Now this word, uh, it, it has a long, interesting history. It, it later gets... It later gets kind of attached to uh, different other words, even toward the anglicized words. Our friends on the other side of the pond, other side of the pond, began to call this the word the, the word kirk, which is like an abbey or a structure, a building, like a cathedral. And and unfortunately, that's very unhelpful for us because here's here's what I would tell you: if you read this word rightly, the church is a people, not a place. 
That might be the most helpful thing you get. And so even uh, when we first started as a church nine years ago, uh, coming up this April, uh, we, we had this kind of metaphorical and even among the staff and, and, and leaders, we had this like a, kind of this metaphorical swear jar. Uh, nobody actually puts any money in, into it. But if you refer to the church as either like a place or a thing or an event, we, we're like jar, right? Because the Bible never speaks of the church with respect to a place or an event. It's more like the word team, right? It'd be, it'd be like me saying to you, like, let's, we, we, you know, I go to family or go to team. You can't go to team. Team is not a place. Now, you can be on a team. You can have a role in a team, right? You can participate in a team. This word church, this called out one, the, the called out ones, called out by the profession of faith and seeing who Jesus is, is a people and not a place. And they serve as an enduring representation of the nature and character of God in the world. So much so, when I say enduring, Jesus gives us a powerful prediction about the future now of the church. I will base this church on you, Peter, and your profession of faith. And the gates of hell, that is literally the, gate, gates, the gates of Hades, the underworld, the, the realm of death. Hell isn't necessarily the best way, uh, to, the most literal way to translate this, because hell is spoken more of like, uh, that is the, the, a place or a, a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth for those that are dead, but also dead and under punishment. He's speaking more broadly about just simply death in general, the underworld, that is, Death will not prevail against it. Whether it is death for those who, are, who die redeemed in Christ or those who find death being cast off of God's presence and experience, experiencing his judgment. And, and so we have some mysterious ambiguity here, right? Ambiguity about what is this Petros, this rock, and then what is this gate and how is it that the church will prevail against it? And I believe it's intentionally am ambiguous. Uh, Matthew is a phenomenal writer up to this point. He's done a really good job of doing things like this, of being intentionally ambiguous to point you to something that's broader. For example, you might ask yourself, well, well what's he talking about? When, when he says this rock in verse 18, is Jesus talking about Peter or is Jesus talking about what it is that Peter has said? And the answer is, yes. That is that the foundation, quite literally the basis, the, the rock, the thing on which the church is built is the profession of the lordship of Jesus amongst his disciples. It is the profession, but it is the embodied profession of people who have been changed by, quite literally, who have now new names because of their profession. The second ambiguity is in the this idea that there's a, prevail, uh, a prevailing that the church will have against death or the gates of hell. Same question you might ask, like, well, well, what's he talking about there? And then there's a lot of disagreement here about the ambiguity uh, amongst people who interpret this. And, and so people are like, well, is he saying that the church is advancing? It's as if the church is encroaching upon death and hell and hell won't be able to stop it. Or is it that hell or death is encroaching and, and Jesus is going to prohibit the, the gates of hell from encroaching upon the church, right? Is it, is it the church that's advancing and prevailing, or is it death and hell that's advancing and the church is prevailing? And again, the answer, yes, yes. 
The church in mission is advancing, declaring the kingship of Christ and his redemptive work, and it is advancing to the nations. It's advancing to the darkness, to the, right, the outsiders, to those who are currently without hope, and maybe that's you, to pluck us out of darkness and death. And, and at the same time, it is also prevailing against the evil forces. Ephesians 5 says the days even are evil. Things that are happening in the world that you and I both know shouldn't be happening. Sorrow and death and destruction. The kind of suffering that headlines every single week of the news. And Jesus says, I'm going to do something through you. You will be a visible representation in the midst of all of that suffering and awfulness of the redemptive character and purpose of God in eternity. Right smack dab in the middle, and it will endure. And all of the sorrow and suffering that comes your way, every single bit of it, will have an expiration date. But the church won't. The church will not have an expiration date. The church will be the thing that prevails. That is, those, again, now, now, now you see why this is important. If, if, if you think of the church as a building or an event, that's silly, right? Like, that's not going to happen. I could, you, you could walk to any part of the world and see church buildings that are in ruins. They, they're museums. They're not full of people praising Jesus. And so that might be, if you think the church is a building, kind of sad, but, but not for us. Because that's not what the church is. The church are simply the people that just so happen to build or inhabit those kinds of buildings. Use them as tools for being and living in this mission that God's called us to be in and on. And those people, called out by God, even though they will face death, do you hear the promise? Will prevail. They will prevail, so much so that they have now the authority to say something. Did you catch the last little section here, the little bit of the section? I will give you, speaking of Peter and the disciples and those who would follow, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This shows up again in Matthew chapter 18 about the church as well, saying that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, we'll get to that later in the Gospel of Matthew, but this is what we have seen up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew is the messianic secret. That is that there's a lot of people who had lots of misconceptions about who Jesus was, that he was going to come and bring this ethno-nationalist kingdom on earth, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what Jesus was doing. And Jesus is simply saying here, slow down. The goal isn't that I just come and, and set up this like crowd of people. I'm going to not just overthrow earthly kingdoms, I'm going to overthrow spiritual and eternal kingdoms. And so you find the language turned that once he is raised from the dead, what does he say? The last words of the Gospel of Matthew. They're not, shh, be quiet, they're go. Go and tell, tell. Not that I've just come to build a kingdom that will pass away. Oh no, go and make disciples, baptizing the nations, teaching them all that I've taught and commanded you. And I'm going to be with you forever. And so this messianic secret is kind of a pause, like just wait. And as the, the scenes slow down, come into slow-mo for the next several chapters, as Jesus returns to Jerusalem, is handed over and crucified and resurrected, we begin to see the focal point. It's not that he was just teaching and performing miracles. No, those were just simply pictures of what he came to do, namely to redeem the lost. But in the meantime, it says that the apostles, the disciples, followers of Jesus had the keys of the kingdom, right? Think of that as the gatekeepers. And so this means that the, 
the church is the people who have now had their eyes supernaturally opened. They're a visible uh, representation, but now also they have a divine power derived from Christ himself. So much so that I can tell you this morning with divine authority, the the gates of the eternal kingdom of God, I can wield them and so can you by the profession that we make. And I can tell you with eternal authority, if you will look to Christ, if you will turn from your sin, if you will turn from trusting in lesser things and look to him, you will spend eternity in his comfort and pleasure. And I can also tell you that if you will reject Christ, if you will turn from him and trust in and hope in lesser things, then you will get those lesser things apart from and separated from God forever. And I know what you'll say. A right response might be to say, who do you think you are to say such things, right? Well, there's two answers. On one hand, nobody. I'm not anybody. I have no authority in and of myself. You shouldn't listen to me at all. But on the second hand, who do you think you are? I'm the one Jesus, again, by some sheer act of grace, has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to. And you, professing the lordship of Christ, are too. That is a powerful, mysterious authority. And I know people might have wielded that authority unhelpfully. And yet still, Jesus invented the church and as an act of grace has invited you and I to be its ambassadors to be the ones that declare the welcome, to roll out the, the, the red carpet for those who would see him as the hope of the universe. Let me give you a picture then kind of to summarize how we think about this, and I'll, then I'll give us very quickly five different metaphors for the church that show us how it is that the church will endure. The church is made up of disciples of Jesus, born again by faith in him, united with him and with other followers of Jesus universally, that is, all Christ followers globally across all time and space, and locally, that is, all Christ followers incorporated into a particular local congregation. Now, you know what this looks like. You have a, right, if I were to ask you for your passport, or if I were to ask you, some of you in the room, for your ID or, right, your driver's license, you would find at least a couple of things there. One, you would see kind of a broader universal identity, right? It would say South Dakota, right? Um, And, you know, I would say it might say Iowa, but we both know that Iowa people don't have driver's license. So (laughs) hang on, this joke is going to come back. It's going to end well. (laughs) But on your ID, you would have kind of a global, larger identity, but at the bottom you would have what? You would have a street address. And here's the thing, you can't have one without the other. You can't have a South, you can't write, can't be a South Dakotan without a South Dakota address. And you can't have a South South Dakota address without being a South Dakotan. And you know that's true, but that's also the picture here of the, the church universal and the church local. We see this most powerfully in, in, in the letters of Paul, but I think in Ephesians chapter Three, one of the great uh, benedictions of the New Testament. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in what? In the church. Well, what's he talking about? He says, In the church and in Christ Jesus, what? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. So you get this picture of the church as this collection, the called out ones from every generation, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That God will draw these people to himself. And you and I are united to a thing that is beyond, right? It's, it's bigger than our skin color, our language, our ethnicity, our culture, and even our time and space. God is calling people ransomed by the blood of Jesus from every tribe, tongue, and language. And they will all be gathered around the beautiful throne of God. And this is beautiful that we're connected to this. That one day, you and I, in Christ, will be the enduring, again, beyond death, we will be the enduring people of God, united to him and to one another. And we will bow at the throne of Jesus. And as we bow, we will see around us, right, picture anyone. There will be people from Bangladesh. There'll be people from Nepal. There'll be people from China. There'll be people from Uganda. There'll be people from, here's the end of this joke and it's good, God help us, people from Iowa. We will all be gathered around the throne and all of those things will simply be footnotes to the glory of Christ. But in that same book, the very beginning of the Ephesians, listen how Paul talks to the church. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see that? They are the saints in Ephesus. Right now we're at the local address, right? This is a group of people that, that God has blessed locally as an embassy. That's actually the language that Paul tells the Corinthians about the church. An embassy. Not the kingdom itself, but a representation. That you and I are now ambassadors making our appeal to the world to be reconciled to God in Christ globally and locally. Big picture, connected to Christians across time and space, and yet connected to, committed to, bound together in Christ with people in a location. In this case, Connection Church, bound together by our profession of faith in Christ. Now, I say this because one of these things probably bothers you the most. You probably struggle with one of these more than the other, there's probably in this room, there's, there's those of you who are like, oh yeah, we're connected to Christians everywhere. And you're like, hey, join a local church. You're like, no, nah, I don't think so. And there's maybe many of you who are like, on the other side, you're like, oh, I love my local church. In fact, I'm glad we're like the only ones going to heaven. Right? Have you seen either of these play out? And just know, this, this is how the gospel runs, right? lays a railroad track right through the, the corruption of the human heart and offers grace. That we are bound together forever and ever with Christians across time and space. And yet we are, as a representation of that, we have a local address. And friend, you can't have one without the other. You're not meant to live in one way that's detrimental to the other. How does this look? I'll give you five, five metaphors that the New Testament gives us for the local church. Of how it is that they, this will endure built on the profession of faith that Peter says here. And, and as a result, I'll, I'll give you kind of like a, a place we went ahead that what you believe about Jesus is visible in your relationship to the local and global church. Do you tend to be more narrow and tribalistic about the church? Well, friend, ponder and dream about the tribes and nations that will be gathering around the throne. There'll be people there you don't expect because, I mean, Graciously, you and I aren't the ones that picked them. Right, we have the keys, but we didn't build the door, right? But on the other hand, do you, 
Maybe the other thing is, do you find yourself having difficulty committing to connection church or a local church body? Well, then, friend, invite the grace of God in that as well. You can't have one without the other, and I have good news for you. There is grace sufficient for you. There is grace available and sufficient for you. And how do I know it? The five metaphors of the church, the five primary metaphors are it. The first metaphor we see for the church, used the most common, is the metaphor of the body. The example here I'll give you is, uh, is Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, members being body parts, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is beautiful. This, you get this picture of the unity of Christ amongst great diversity. And again, so maybe, maybe like if you find yourself, Man, I, don't, I don't want to join this church because of X, Y, and Z, right? And Paul says, don't think so highly of yourself. Don't think more highly than you ought to. Instead, see, see this body like you would see your own body. Think of it this way. What is your relationship? Like what is your body's relationship to your hand? That's a, that's a strange question to ask, is it not? Like, what is your body's relationship to your hand? Now, your hand is not your body. Right? We don't think of that as an essential ingredient, but it is an essential part of your body. Insofar as if you lost your hand, if you were like some, some maybe you know and I know, that have lost a limb, their life is different. You don't go on the same way. And so, friend, see the invitation to not just be included into God's family, but to be an integral, like a necessary, essential part of God's plan. And again, if that's not Connection Church, praise God, we want to help you find the church that you become a necessary, integral part. This helps us fight for unity, that even though we're different, we have different roles, different gifts, different temperaments, different ways of seeing the world, God help us, different politics, we are still essential not because or in spite of those things, but because of Christ. Christ has done this. Christ has called us to be essential parts of his mission in the world. And in fact, this is the, the coolest thing. It's, it's, not, it's not instead of, but it, when the church looks different but is still unified in the gospel, that's when Jesus is most provocative to the world. Because, friend, I know, I know this. Throughout time and history, every single generation, there are, there are forces, parties, right, whether it's political or, or ethnic or philosophical, that try to co-opt the church so that their cause would appear to be transcendental. And I know it's succeeded. Now, the good news is that God says those, those movements will come and go. But those who profess the name of Jesus will not. And so, friend, I have just as many reasons to be skeptical of this as you, and yet the invitation is still the same. Hear the good news. Christ has called us not to look like some group, right? Like, like your political party. It might be good for doing a few things, but Jesus won't fight and die for it. It will have an expiration date. Your nation state. While it might be good and helpful for certain things, it will come to an end. 
right? And we know this, this is a book written in Greek and none of you are speaking ancient Greek. It's a dead language, right? And yet, what are we doing? We're hearing good news out of a dead language. You, you get the idea? And Jesus has promised that he will hold fast to his people, both locally and globally, and he will draw them together as, a member, as members of a body. Now, this will help, be helpful to, to kind of fix any awful understandings of membership. Um, I'll just leave you with this thought. I'm a member of Sam's, Costco, whatever. They don't really care um, whether or not I do anything. All they care about is my dues. Um, and here's the gospel imperative here. Rejoice, be glad. Jesus has paid your dues to enter the kingdom. All of it, every little bit of it. And now we're a picture of that kingdom on earth. The second most common picture we see is the bride, that she is beautiful. This picture of how much Jesus loves her. Again, same thing, there might be baggage. You can list as, as many husbands there are, you could list bad husbands. And yet we're meant to be invited to consider what Christ is like as a model. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother in Ephesians 5 and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. And every married person goes, amen. But this mystery is not even that profound. The mystery that's really profound, what, is, what do we find here? I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Earlier in that passage, we see that Christ has laid down his life for his bride, that is the church. And we're meant to see this as, uh, if we see the unity in the picture of the body, we see the beauty and the value in the picture of the bride. And maybe some of you just need to hear this. The Lord loves you so much that he sent his own son to take your place, to redeem you to himself. Here's the other half of that, though. Friend, stop treating the bride of Christ like your mistress. In the same way, if you came to me and you were like, hey, Jonathan, I really love you, but your wife, ugh, Right? If you were like, Jonathan, I want to be friends with you, but your wife, just please keep me away from your wife. I don't want any part of her. Right? You get how we have problems now, right? Like we, that's okay. Like we, you wanted to fight. Now we're doing it. Here we go. I don't know why you did that, but this is, this is what happens. And so also, if you find yourself thinking, man, I love Jesus, but I don't like the bride for whom he has laid down his life, friend, you have not heard the good news of Jesus who has taken the broken, the rotten, the sinful, and the awful, and he has united himself to you and to me to redeem us to new life, new identity, new purpose, and new hope. And so now the local church is a picture, a picture, obviously imperfect, but remember the picture isn't ultimately about us. It's about the one who laid down his life to save us. The third metaphor you see is family. You see this in the Paul's letter to the second, the second, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, I'll be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And the language of brother and sister and family throughout the New Testament to describe this beautiful picture, excuse me, I said five metaphors, I'm going to lump the last two into one, let's make it one. I was going to say family and then temple and then household, but the language of temple and household is used interchangeably. So the fourth metaphor of household or temple used pretty interchangeably Paul is writing to Timothy saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is what? The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And in this language of family and household and temple, we see the sacrifice of Christ to make us his own. That we are not only just brought into this by something we've done, but we are adopted into it by the love of God. So let me give you a few concluding words 
that I want to use to hopefully invite you to give your life to Jesus and give your life to the local church. We do not join a church, we submit to the church. This isn't a consumer relationship. Remember what I told you? Remember what I told you? How you relate to the local church is a picture of how you relate to God the Father. And so, right, do you see the church as like the dentist? That like you're just going to go and get ridiculed and judged and spoken of badly because you didn't floss or brush your teeth enough? And all you Pharisees in the room who brush your teeth and floss enough don't know what that's like, but good luck. <laughs> For the rest of us, it's like, why don't you brush enough? I do! Right? Is that how you see the local church? People just ready to shame you and make, like ridicule you? Then, friend, I have good news for you, and you haven't heard it. Hear the good news. That is not how God the Father sees you. There is now, now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the people of God are not racked with shame and guilt. We're the people who are free from those things because of Christ. And we give ourselves freely because now God has given himself freely to us. So, friend, invite grace here. As you think about that, here's, here's a, a word of wisdom. I think the, the Bible teaches us about the covenant keeping of God and the invitation to commit to the local church. You grow through commitment, not into it. There is no, I've never met a single person who got married because they were ready for it. I've, I've never met that person who was like, I, man, this has been amazing. I was so ready for this. I just have not met that person. If you were that person, I'd love to talk with you. Mostly I'd like to talk with your spouse because you haven't talked to that person about it, likely. But the power of marriage and commitment is not what you do to get ready for it. It's what it does to you when you're not. And this is the beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The power of the grace of God is not about what you do to earn it or, or measure up to it. The power of the grace of God is what it does to you when you don't. And friend, you can give yourself, commit yourself to Jesus knowing that he will shape you through that commitment. I know you're not ready for it. You can give yourself to the local church. I know you, I know you, I know all and I'm embarrassed. Yeah, join the club. But this is how God works. God has shown himself to us through his faithfulness and his steadfastness. There are things about God that you and I will not know until we've sat with him for eternity. It's not in those moments. It's in eternity. The steadfastness of God is visible. And lastly, see the promise that Jesus gives us to grow us, to shape us, to invite us into being something we could never be on our own. But look at the promise. He says, I'm going I'm I'm to build this on you, Peter, but Hades, death will not prevail against it. Hear the gospel promise for Jesus, for the disciples, and for you and me. That Jesus has redeemed a people for himself and he overcame death to do it. That is that what Jesus is accomplishing here and passing on to his apostles, he will pay for with his own journey through death. And he will pay for it, not by avoiding it. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't defeat death by like juking it, right? Jesus doesn't defeat death by outsmarting it jumping out of its way at the last minute. Jesus defeats death by bearing the marks of it in his body and being raised victoriously over it on the third day. And friend, the church won't outsmart or avoid death either. 
But you won't. In fact, you and I will face it. Many of us already have faced it. But the good news isn't that we are able to outsmart or outrun death, friend. The good news is that united to Christ, he will raise us victorious over it. And the people of God that he has redeemed through the very death and resurrection of his own son will be united to him forever. So what's holding you back? What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Be very honest with yourself and with, the, with God the Father about this because there's nothing but grace waiting. We don't hide from these kinds of questions. What's holding you back? What's holding you back from giving your life to Jesus and giving your life to the local church? Because there is grace waiting for you. Is it hurt? Is it disappointment? I know some of you carry wounds from what the church has done to you. I would never want to dismiss that. After all, she's, she is a, a gathering of sinners called out to Christ who bring with them their own baggage. I, I would never try to dismiss that. I'm sure you have You've been hurt by that. But can I say the same to you? There's grace. And there's a powerful grace that's available that the God of the universe doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to heal you, restore you. What's holding you back? Be honest with yourself, with God. Tell it to Jesus and tell it to people around you and you might find something amazing. The enduring grace of Jesus ready for you. The enduring grace of Jesus that transforms us, gives us a new name, a new hope, and a new life. It's waiting for those who look to him and find it. And we get to call that covenant community, that group of people redeemed, given a new name and purpose. Maybe there's better words, right? But Jesus has called that redeemed people that declare in their body and beauty and unity and cooperation and endurance the church. Let's thank God that he saves sinners into the church together. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you have come to be what we could not be. You have redeemed us and you have restored us in Christ. I pray that those who might not be able to say that about themselves would hear the hope and enduring promise that you offer, that you have come to the outsider, that you have endured death to come to be with us and for us and like us so that we would never be forsaken so that we would be known by the Father and welcomed by him forever and ever. Thank you that it is by the power and grace of Jesus that we are welcomed into his family. God, we confess that this family is often dysfunctional because it, it bears the marks of its natural birth. It bears the marks of its iniquity and, and its sin, and so we, we bring that to you, Lord. We confess that the church is often co-opted and it's not what it ought to be. We confess that to you, and we pray that you would, as you have promised, endure with her by your lasting promise to never leave her, shape her. We pray that specifically for Connection Church or for the local churches that uh, the people in this room will be called to belong to, Lord. Uh, we are not what we ought to be, but thank you that you have not forsaken us, but you have promised to remain with us and to make us all that you mean to make us. Thank you, above all, that you endured death in order to do that for us. Thank you that you have endured this and paid this price for us in Jesus' name. Amen.